Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the first of two spooky specials from the Voices of the Northeast podcast for the Christmas period. Now, Christmas is my favourite time of year for so many reasons. It's wonderful to sit down with family and share stories from yesteryear, but also it's a wonderful time because it's dark. The afternoons lead into nighttime really quickly and you can share some spooky stories. And that's what we're going to do on tonight's episode. If you were here for the Halloween special, well, special number one at Halloween, because we did too, you will remember that I spoke to Sylvia, who runs this fantastic um, blog, The Haunted Palace, and they have two books out, so check those out. And Sylvia told us all about the Wall's End Witches. Now, that episode was great fun to listen to and edit, so it was a real treat. And I couldn't not invite Sylvia back. And she's come back this time to tell us about the Anik Vampire. Now that's a spooky one for Christmas. So, let me light the candles. And get comfortable in your seats, everybody. Here's the story of the Anik Vampire. The actual story of the Anic Vampire was originally told in the 12th century by a medieval historian called William of Newburgh. And anyone who wants to read it in its original text, it's in book five of his Historia Rerum Anglicarum. And there are English translations that are available on free on the internet. Firstly, it's worth saying that medieval historians aren't always the most reliable sources for information, that they're totally known for flights of fancy. But one thing William does is he makes a conscious effort to try and use reliable sources. So he uses texts like Bede's ecclesiastical histories, and he even trolled other famous medieval historians for just making things up. So he was not a fan of Geoffrey of Monmouth, even though he was quite a big name at the time. William was very keen on verifying his sources. So with that in mind, it's a bit odd or it certainly seems a bit odd that um, William of Newburgh would include like a really fantastical tale of a reanimated corpse in in a serious history book and he doesn't just include one he's got four stories about vampire type creatures and re- revenants and that really stands out as unusual to a modern reader of, of a history book but it, it makes sense with the belief system at the time so I'll, I'll kind of mention a bit about that later Right at the start of the story, William explains his sources. He basically says that it was an eyewitness who told him this story, and not just anybody, but it was actually a monk or priest who was a a really, really trustworthy source. So he's trying to verify that this is true. And the other point to note before I I kind of try and tell the story is that um, in the original text, the castle mentioned is called Anantis, but a a lot of people believe that is actually located at Anik, so that's why it's come to be known as the Anik Vampire. So here is my abridged version of the tale. Um, As I say, it's from a medieval source, so um, it can be a little bit wordy, so I've cut it down a little bit. So... A certain man of evil conduct, flying through fear of his enemies or the law, out of the province of York, to the lord of Anic Castle, took up his abode there, and having cast upon a service befitting his humour, laboured hard to increase, rather than correct, his own evil propensities. He married a wife to his own ruin indeed, as it afterwards appeared, 
for hearing certain rumours respecting her, he was vexed with the spirit of jealousy. Anxious to ascertain the truth of these reports, he pretended to be going on a journey from which he would not return for some days. But coming back in the evening, he was privily introduced into his bedroom by a maidservant who was in on the secret, and lay hidden on a beam overhanging his wife's chamber, that he might prove with his own eyes if anything were done to the dishonour of his marriage bed. Thereupon, beholding his wife in the act of fornication with a young man of the neighbourhood, in his indignation he was forgetful of his purpose, and he fell from the beam, and he was dashed heavily to the ground, near where they were lying. The adulterer leapt up and escaped, but the wife, cunningly dissembling the fact, busied herself in gently raising her fallen husband from the earth. As soon as he'd partially recovered, he upbraided her with her adultery and threatened punishment, but she blamed his jealous thoughts on his injuries. Being much shaken by the fall and his whole body stupefied, he was attacked with a disease in so much that the priest admonished him to make a confession of his sins and receive the Christian Eucharist in proper form. But he was so occupied in thinking about what had happened to him and what his wife had said, he put off the wholesome advice until the morrow. That morrow which in this world he was fated never to behold. For the next night he shared the deep slumber of death. A Christian burial, indeed, he received, although unworthy, for issuing by the handiwork of Satan from his grave at night time and pursued by a pack of dogs with horrible barkings he wandered through the courts and around the houses while all men made fast their doors and did not dare go abroad for any errand whatever from the beginning of the night until the sunrise for fear of meeting and being beaten black and blue by this vagrant monster but those precautions were of no avail for the atmosphere, poisoned by the vagaries of this foul carcass, filled every house with disease and death by its pestiferous breath. Already did the town, which but a short time ago was populous, appear almost deserted, while those inhabitants who had escaped destruction migrated to other parts of the country, lest they too should die. The priest, from whose mouth I heard these things, sorrowing over the desolation of his parish, applied himself to summon a meeting of wise and religious men on Palm Sunday. However, while they were thus banqueting at the priest's house, two young men, brothers, who had lost their father by this plague, mutually encouraging one another, decided to dig up the corpse and burn it. Thereupon, snatching up a spade of but indifferent sharpness of edge, and hastening to the cemetery, they began to dig. And while they were thinking that they would have to dig to a greater depth, they suddenly, before much of the earth had been removed, laid bare the corpse, swollen to an enormous corpulence, with its countenance beyond measure turgid and suffused with blood, while the shroud in which it had been wrapped appeared nearly torn to pieces. The young men, however, spurred on by wrath, feared not, and inflicted a wound, a wound upon the senseless carcass, out of which incontinently flowed such a stream of blood that it might have been taken for a leech filled with the blood of many persons. Then, dragging it beyond the village, they speedily constructed a funeral pile, and upon one of them saying that the pestilential body would not burn unless its heart were torn out, the other laid open its side by repeated blows of the blunted spade, 
and thrusting in his hand, dragged out the accursed heart. This being torn piecemeal, and the body now consigned to the flames. When that infernal hellhound had thus been destroyed, the pestilence which was rife among the people ceased, as if the air, which had been corrupted by the contagious motions of the dreadful corpse, were already purified by the fire which had consumed it. And there you go. Oh, that's, that's a bloody story, isn't it? <laughs> that is that is a gory story with lots of bloated corpses in. Yes. Uh, and I think um, what the first thing that strikes me and probably struck you there is that this is not a vampire that we're used to from books and movies. The guy isn't some drawing room aristocrat. He's not Count Dracula. And he's a million miles away from sparkly heartthrob Edward Cullen from Twilight. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, he's just none of these things. He doesn't even... Um, sink his fangs into his victims he's either beating them up or infecting them with an unnamed pestilence so that that is to think he's a vampire it, it needs a bit of explanation mm. as to why why he's known as the anic vampire to, to consider that i kind of looked at what the vampire is in in tradition in in folklore and vampires i mean the subject of vampires is, is huge and obviously this is a light Yes. <laughs> trip, trip down vampire law. So there are vampires all over the world. They've got lots of different names. They appear in lots of different cultures. And there are lots of different approaches to dealing with them. Arguably the most famous type of vampire that we're probably more familiar with, because I believe it's the origin of, of Dracula-type stories, is Slavic folklore. And the Slavic vampire is described as he's a big, ruddy-faced, bloated animated corpse he's got bad breath he doesn't attack by biting the neck often if he does attack it's like that it's going to be the chest area and he doesn't always drink blood but he always brings death and disease to those closest to family friends and the local people mm. and it's found the, the usual sort of habitation for a slavic vampire isn't some fabulous castle up on a, on a hill somewhere it's basically just the place he's buried and he's usually a peasant rather than an aristocrat oh. so that that's that's the most common sort of european slavic vampire folklore lost through fiction now we, yes we have a very yeah. different view but coming back to the anic vampire obviously you might have noticed anic it's not in eastern europe so there's how does all this link it's also interesting that the word vampire didn't enter the english language until about the 1730s right. so it there was a, quite a famous case um, in, in Europe, I can't even pronounce it, Peter Plogovich or something, that brought the word into the English language. And there was a lot more people travelling then to, to mm. Eastern Europe to find a little bit more out about uh, this, this folkloric tradition. What I started to look at was really, was there anything similar in medieval England that was very similar to a vampire? Or was, was the Anic vampire anything, something else entirely? So this is where the reasons why somebody like William of Newburgh would include this story uh, become more oh, evident. Okay. So, in the medieval period, and from the very early church, there was a big debate about what point did death occur. So, there, there would be a big discussion about life and death. People wondered: were people alive and then dead? Was there a gap? Was there was were they was death a, a, a one single discrete event, or was it a process? 
this had sort of philosophical and religious implications, which I, I, can't, I haven't got time to go into. <laughs> and I, I probably am not the best qualified to go into anyway. This gives you the option that if you've got a process for death, you can have something like, like in The Princess Bride, where someone could be mostly dead, but not entirely dead. Um, <laughs> and, and that gives you a sort of enter point for undead revenants walking around. They're not quite dead yet. So, and you add into that, that medieval pe people really loved gruesome images, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you've got rotting cadavers and wormy skeletons. You've got the three living, the three dead kings, um, the dance of death, king death. They're just everywhere. They love a good corpse in the medieval period. Um, and again, right, there's a reason why they like them. And it's because, um, very simplified view of it. They're de designed to remind people to lead good Christian lives. Because um, if you don't, the wages of sin are death. And if you don't do all the right things um, religious-wise, then you're not going to go to heaven and you, you may end up in purgatory. So again, mm. this is giving you a kind of little gap between death and heaven yes. or hell. You've got a little area of uncertainty here where revenants could be, you know, a possibility. These stories were really popular. I mean, it was really popular brief belief throughout Europe from the 12th to about the 15th century that the unquiet dead got up and caused trouble, that people reported corpses dancing in graveyards, all sorts of things. And there has been a little bit of um, archaeological evidence for so-called deviant burials, where there's clearly been some kind of like um, protective action taken against the corpses to prevent them coming back after death. I, mm. I kind of, I, I also wondered, um, like why do people why did people need vampires and revenants as, a, as an idea mm. right so what's the purpose i mean because i know they're a folkloric creature but what's the purpose behind them looking into that like a lot of writers have linked um, belief in vampires and and revenants to how pre-modern people who didn't have a lot of medical knowledge who didn't have access to good medicine how they could cope with um outbreaks of disease it was a kind right. of way, it's sort of like you could regain control through ritual actions. So digging up the corpse, destroying its heart, burning the body, that could be seen as a sort of protective action to stop the spread of a disease. And, and then if you add to that, that you dig up a corpse because you think, yeah, there's, you know, ground zero of what, why we're having an a, um, outbreak of something. If you dig that cor corpse up and then it looks fresh when you dig it up, then you, you just, that's your proof, isn't it? Yes. It's fresh yeah. because it's undead. Bloated, ruddy-faced corpses. If you don't know anything about modern sort of pathology and about how the gases and the breakdown of a body affects its appearance, like, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, um, yeah. all of that kind of ties into, you, you can justify your, your belief that this is the source of the contagion. Going on from there, I looked at whether... We've got vampires on one hand and we've got re revenants on the other hand. So I thought, I'll have a little look to see whether they're different or the same. And as it's just a quick sort of look at the main characteristics and whether the Anic vampire had any, all, or some yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, two books I really use to look into this. Paul Barber has written an excellent, serious study of vampires, burial, and death. And it's, it's great. It's a good starting point for vampire lore. Um, really detailed, really thorough. Um, and he picked four elements. So predisposition. Does the person lead an evil or sinful life? And then fate. So were they born on a particular day? Are they like 
um, you know, on a, under an unlucky star, or the, oh, right. yeah. you know, seventh sun. That that's a thing in I think, <laughs> yes. Romania. Then events, so things that happened to them. So were they murdered? Did they die suddenly? And finally, non-events, so things that weren't done. So, for example, if they weren't given a proper burial, that's a real crucial. That's a really popular one. And I looked at a book called Afterlives about the medieval dead by Nancy Mandeville Cassiola. So might have pronounced her name wrong and <laughs> um, she identifies some of the main features that make a person more at risk of becoming a revenant in medieval you know ideas and they're really similar so the life they led were they sinful or violent how mm. they died were they violent was it you know sudden violent was it in the prime of life had they confessed prior to death had they been given a proper burial if not these things would make them more at risk of coming back and basically medieval period and it seems similar to to the slavic traditions i guess i guess that if a person died and they either had a really strong negative energy, they were really evil, or mm -hmm. they had unfinished business because they died before their time, then there was a bigger risk that they would come back as a revenant. And this was explained by some people in the medieval period that when a person died before their time or were particularly evil, their remaining unexpended life force remained in the corpse. and drove it to rise again as a revenant and uh, go out and wreak vengeance and oh, may wow. mayhem so they had thought they had thought about it they were like yeah why why would we do why would this happen this is why because there's still some life force in there and that's why um people had to take preventative measures take their heart out you burn it <laughs> you, you, you you do things yeah. right you, you protect yeah, yeah. yourself through ritual actions so Considering both of those two types and, and categories of, of, of requirements for vampire and revenant, I think, I mean, the Anik vampire, he's got the predisposition. He's described as evil. He's running away from enemies in the law. He dies violently. He's consumed with jealousy and well before his time. He refuses to have the last rites of the church, so he's mm. unshriven of sin when he dies. He does get a proper burial, but then he's observed to rise from the grave and commit violence and spread a pestilence. So that in the idea of contagion coming yes. through. And when he's dug up, his corpse displays those classic characteristics. It's bloated, the fresh blood when they stab the corpse and his shroud is torn. So it looks like he's been moving about and that the cure that they impose, that they take out the heartburn, the body restores the natural order it removes the pestilence and the contagion from the village so for my mind while it's debatable that vampire law at that period in england was a thing i think as a revenant he's got fangs he's for me it works yeah. I, I i think the anic vampire is is got a lot of the characteristics of a vampire so yeah that that's um what i found out about the anic vampire <laughs> <laughs> i think i think it's great i even just I don't know, An Anik's such a, a historic place that it's got yeah. just even the t the title alone, the Anik Vampire, just <laughs> I know. In instantly makes you go, ooh, oh, come on, tell me more. <laughs> like It just draws you in straight away. And I um, can't even remember where I first heard the, about the story, but I, I dug it up. It was one of the first things I wrote for the blog. Mm. And in this, obviously, this version of the story, he's like... Um, like just a, an ordinary man mm -hmm. but it, there's an earlier version i couldn't i just found referred to in sources where he is the lord of the manor and he goes out and wreaks havoc mm -hmm. on the on the peasantry but then he kind of got demoted so the the main version is william william de newberg yeah. but he he does include four stories of revenants there's one in 
Berwick, there's one in Melrose, there's one in Buckinghamshire, and there's this one. And he actually says at one point in the thing, such things happen a lot in, in England, you know, they're really, <laughs> really common. So it's fascinating, the whole medieval mindset, and it appeared logical at the time to believe that this was a possibility. Well, what do we think of that? <laughs> that is... Whew. Firstly, I've got to say thank you to Sylvia for coming back to tell us that story um, and share that kind of folklore with us again. It's brilliant. And secondly, the next time I'm in Anik, I think I might make sure I'm out of Anik by sundown. I'll certainly be looking over my shoulder down those old streets of that town. <laughs> I mean, Anik's a, you know, Anik is kind of like a, a mini Edinburgh in certain parts, you know. It's got those old streets and, and, and beautiful old architecture. Um, so you could, you know, if you if you want to go and visit Anik with the tale of the Anik vampire in mind, go and spook yourself a little bit. Have a look around, because, um, yeah, that was fantastic. Well, that is our first spooky special for Christmas. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's interesting to you. I hope you're about to uh, Google the Anik Vampire now, because I bet you are. You're gonna ha- you're gonna press stop on this episode in a second, and you're gonna Google the Anik Vampire, and you are gonna be telling people over the Christmas period, "Hey, did you know there was a vampire? Have you heard of the Anik Vampire?" And that's what the program's all about: getting you talking and talking about history. <laughs> Have a very merry Christmas, everybody. Please come back soon for the second spooky special for Christmas, which is a spooky story that I'm going to be reading. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Take care of yourselves. Have a very merry Christmas, and I hope you're all spending it with your loved ones. <laughs>